tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Welcome to The Feast. I'm your host, Laura Carlson, and we're bringing you stories from the best meals of history. Food is what keeps us humans going. We can't live without it. But for something that has such a strong connection with life, food also has an interesting and very complex relationship with death. Specific meals or foods often have been a way to commemorate and remember the dead. Toasts at an Irish wake can be a way of helping to celebrate a person's life. Bringing food to a mourning Jewish family while they sit shiva is considered a good deed. In the U.S. and England during the 19th century, cakes or cookies were distributed at a funeral for the mourners to take with them, a physical edible memento. Even at Halloween, ever wonder why we hand out candy to little ghosts and goblins? The tradition of consoling ourselves with food is nothing new. Ancient tombs throughout the world reveal that people have associated food with death for thousands of years. Although the food served at wakes or other funerary rituals today might be considered more for the comfort of the living than for the dead, it's not always been the case. In many instances throughout the world, food is a necessary part of a person's journey to the afterlife. And often even in death, a person's need for food was believed to continue. When archaeologists excavated ancient Egyptian tombs, like those in the Valley of the Kings, they discovered burial chambers full of meals designed for a person's afterlife. A belief in a full and active hereafter, many kings and queens were sent to the beyond with their tombs crammed full of things they might need in their post-mortem lives, from chariots to dining tables. This could even extend to cooking supplies. Grindstones, for example, used to make flour from grain, have been found in a number of tombs of ancient Egyptian women. These items can show a loving concern by relatives, an attempt to make the deceased's time in the afterlife as pleasant as possible, a belief in a next life very similar to this one. But it often could have a very pragmatic function as well. Keep the dead content and full, and you won't have a hangry ghost coming back to haunt you. Often, there's a strict line between food meant for the living and that meant for the dead. But what happens when these lines blur? Today, the feast is traveling back to the oldest meal we've explored yet, the remnants of a funeral feast held over 2,700 years ago. We'll learn how archaeologists were able to discover detailed information about the diets of an ancient civilization because, as it appears, someone forgot to do the washing up at the end of the night. 
Try using that excuse next time it's your turn to do the dishes. The city was an archaeologist's dream come true. There, out in the plains of Turkey, an entire ancient metropolis, thousands of years old, practically undisturbed. Palaces, baths, kitchens, streets, and of course, lavish tombs, all remnants of a civilization historians knew precious little about. Known as the Phrygians, Till now they had been remembered mostly in stories and fragments of statues and mosaics found scattered throughout the Mediterranean, evidence of a sophisticated people, successful merchants, capable warriors, powerful leaders. Yet the shifting currents of the ancient world saw the Phrygian state topple almost 2,700 years ago, leaving what had once been their capital city, Gordion, to wither away in the dust. It was this site that now spurred the ambitions of any archaeologist willing to get their hands dirty. But it was the giant burial mound at the edge of the city, clearly the tomb of a prestigious Phrygian king, rising over 150 feet, about 10 stories tall, dominating the skyline, that posed the most tantalizing prospect. Rodney Young had seen evidence of Gordion in photos, the broken walls, the giant burial mound. He had heard about it from other archaeologists. And he had worked on impressive sites before. His graduate work had brought him to the ancient agora of Athens, a once-in-a-lifetime chance for any budding archaeologist. That work had landed him the prestigious post as a curator at the University of Pennsylvania's museum. Young knew that the site at Gordion had the power to put his museum and the university on the map. A leader in archaeology. So early in 1950, armed with shovels, pickaxes, and brushes, Young and his team made their way to Gordion, just south of the modern capital of Ankara and Turkey, hoping to uncover the mysteries of a civilization almost 3,000 years old. Young and his team were continuously at Gordion for almost seven years before approaching the big prize, the burial mound, or tumulus, on the far side of the city. There was no way to know what was waiting for them on the inside of the tomb. Young had drilled a hole down straight to the very heart of the mountain, 70 meters in. From there, they built a tunnel, making their way slowly to where they hoped the ancient king lay buried. It was long, tiring work under the Turkish sun. But as they reached the very middle of the mound, the temperature dropped, creating an almost cave-like environment that was a welcome break from the outside heat. And eventually, the digging paid off. The tunnel had found its way to the exterior wall of the tomb itself, buried deep in the giant man-made mountain. Now, the archaeologists had ideas about what might lie beyond. The remains of an important person, obviously. But if King Tut's tomb was anything to go on, wealth beyond their wildest dreams was also a distinct possibility. After all, ancient kings were often in the habit of being sent off to the afterlife with more than a few worldly possessions. But if Young's theories were correct, 
there was another reason his team might hope for more than a few potsherds or trinkets in the tomb. You see, the Phrygians, as little as we might know about them, had a very particular claim to fame. A king whose name had stood the test of time had survived in myths and stories all over the world for thousands of years. Now, while few people on the street would be able to tell you much about the Phrygians, almost anyone would recognize this king's name. You see, the tomb they were digging in was believed to be none other than that of King Midas. Now, we all remember the story of King Midas, right? The legendary king whose touch reportedly could turn anything and everything to gold. Or how about the one where God gave Midas donkey ears because the king had unwisely insulted his music? There are actually thousands of these legends all over the world, ranging from Ireland to Central Asia, all seemingly referring to the same, well, quite unfortunate king. A few ancient histories talked about Midas, but for years it wasn't really clear whether or not this legendary king of the Golden Touch had truly existed. Because so little was known about Phrygian society, it was extremely hard to untangle the Midas myth from the history. But as the excavators broke through the stone and wooden logs that made up the tomb wall, Young and his team soon found themselves staring at the feet of what could very well have been the legendary king himself. Dressed in a bronze-studded leather outfit, the king lay on a plush bed of purple and brown cloth. Surrounding him were hundreds of artifacts, pins, tables, chairs, but not one ounce of gold. Bronze and iron, sure, the place was covered in it. But for a king whose name had become irrevocably linked with excessive glittering wealth, his tomb was strangely missing any indication of that famous Midas touch. But even without any hint of Midas's love of gold, something was odd about this tomb. The tables and chairs were beautiful pieces of Phrygian design, clearly things of great worth, even if they weren't made of gold. But what was with all the cups and bowls? The archaeologists counted over 150 different bronze goblets, surely more than enough to see Midas through in the afterlife. Beyond those were more cups, serving trays, and giant bronze cauldrons. Midas either had a deep and abiding love of flatware, or something else was going on. And once archaeologists started investigating the objects, more mysteries turned up. Instead of sending off the great king into the afterlife with freshly made goods to be used only in the hereafter, it now looked like the king had been shut in with used dishware. Beyond the dust and dirt of the tomb, scientists found the remains of ancient food and drink in the tomb's cups and bowls. The great King Midas's tomb was starting to resemble nothing so much as the morning after of a college frat party, where the guests had forgotten to clean up before going to bed. But as Young and his team quickly realized, the scraps of food and dregs of wine left over from what had clearly been a lavish ancient meal were more precious than any gold they might have been hoping to find in Midas's tomb. Those scraps were among the oldest known prepared foods in the world, 
a chance to learn what people had actually eaten 2,700 years ago. Finding food like this was almost impossible. Yes, other tombs like King Tut's often included food, but usually anything put into the tomb was meant exclusively for the dead in the afterlife. It wasn't food for the living. And, unless it was particularly well-preserved, in many cases, food or drink simply couldn't survive the thousands of years. Usually it faded away into dust long before archaeologists or anyone else could find it. But in Midas' tomb, undisturbed for so long, it was clear that the food in the bowls or cups hadn't been prepared just for the dead king, but were in fact the leftovers of an epic funeral feast. A Phrygian wake, if you will. We have a number of clues that maybe such meals were common throughout the ancient world. Epics like Homer's The Iliad describe magnificent funeral feasts in which hundreds of oxen, sheep, goats, and pigs would be sacrificed and roasted on giant spits. Homer tells us about the funeral for Patroclus. Basically, the best. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Trend of Achilles, in which massive offerings of animals, oil, honey, and wine were thrown or poured onto the funeral pyre before the whole mess was buried under a giant earthen mound. Food and wine as a necessary part of any funeral seems to have been a constant in the ancient world. The Hittites, the predecessors of the Phrygians, required an elaborate 13-day series of ceremonies for their royal funerals, one of which included holding a lavish banquet at which the body of the dead king would be seated at the head of the table. Since so little had survived a Phrygian culture, it was impossible to know whether King Midas's funeral feast resembled that of the ancient Greeks or the Hittites. What was clear, however, was what was left of the ancient meal had ended up buried with Midas until Young's team had uncovered it in the 1950s. But what would have been on the menu 2,700 years ago? Was it possible to determine anything from a few dregs of ancient wine? Well, thanks to the wonders of chemistry and a little help from modern technology, those few scraps or drops could reveal incredible detail about what was found on ancient Phrygian dining tables. Although discovered in the 1950s, Young had realized that the tools weren't yet available to properly analyze the contents of the dishes and bowls. Kept safely locked away in the University of Pennsylvania's collection, the food from Midas's feast had waited 2,700 years. It could wait another few decades. It was only in the 1990s when Dr. Patrick McGovern, also at the University of Pennsylvania, decided to take another very close look at the samples from Midas's tomb. Known popularly as the Indiana Jones of ancient ales, wines, and extreme beverages, he works as the scientific director of the Biomolecular Archaeology Laboratory for Cuisine, Fermented Beverages, and Health. Quite the job title. In a bold move, 
He suggested using modern processes like mass spectrometry and liquid chromatography on small portions of the ancient food scraps in the hopes of isolating their various parts, looking for specific molecules or acids that might identify what exactly the food had been. Often found in medical or forensic procedures, using these techniques on ancient foodstuffs wasn't exactly usual. But with these processes, McGovern and his lab were able to isolate fatty acids from the residue on some of the tomb's bowls, suggesting sheep or goat, even specifying that the meat had probably been roasted on the bone before being cut up and then seasoned with a various blend of herbs and spices. Basically, an ancient goat or mutton stew. Not that a meat-based dish was all that surprising. As we saw with Patroclus, such great funerary banquets in the ancient world often called for a massive amount of meat, both in the form of sacrifice and also what was often served to the mourners as part of the funerary feast. But McGovern's lab could do more, beyond the meat. They could determine the precise blend of spices added to this dish, basically how the ancient Phrygians liked to flavor their food. Found in the same bowls as the meat, McGovern saw traces of honey, wine, and olive oil, along with anise, fennel, and some kind of pepper, as well as a variety of what was probably lentils, or at least some kind of pulse. Overall, a very rich and complex dish, using ingredients found locally to the area, like the lentils, as well as luxury goods perhaps imported from other areas, like pepper. Tracing the ingredients in an ancient stew was one thing, but McGovern also discovered the remains of what was possibly the favorite cocktail in town in 700 BC. Using the same techniques as he had with the meat, McGovern found out that the cups from Midas's tomb contained an interesting combination of tartaric acid, calcium oxalate, and beeswax. Now, if you're not up on your organic chemistry, here's a clue. McGovern had seemingly found an ancient equivalent of a Long Island iced tea that combined grape wine with barley beer and honey mead. Clearly not a taste sensation that has lasted until today. Although such a combination might be unusual to find in your local bar or pub, the Phrygians certainly weren't alone in their love of blended alcohols. If we head back to good old Homer and the Iliad, we find descriptions of a very similar beverage one that combined not only beer, wine, and mead, but even threw some goat's cheese in there for good measure. This is the fabled Greek kaikion, supposedly the favorite drink of the ancient Greeks, and often even used in religious ceremonies as a hearty drink to break religious fasts. But from McGovern's discoveries, it was clear that it wasn't just the Greeks mixing their alcohols, but their eastern neighbors, the Phrygians, as well. Large cauldrons and ladles specifically designed for the beverage were found throughout the Midas tomb, perhaps an indication that folks were encouraged to drink freely at this particular funeral feast. With such a specific menu over 2,700 years old, it was impossible to resist trying to recreate a few of the dishes and even the famous mixed Phrygian cocktail. In 1999, McGovern issued an open call for any brewery to try and take on the ancient drink. 
Dogfish Head Brewery, located in Delaware, took on the challenge and brewed up what they called, fittingly, the Midas Touch. Based roughly on that heady blend of ancient alcohol, the Midas Touch also thankfully made a few allowances for modern taste, like adding hops, unfortunately not a known ingredient in ancient beer. But it looks like some tastes are maybe eternal. The Midas Touch won the brewery medals throughout the U.S. and the world. You can even get your own bottle of Midas Touch today. It remains one of the brewery's most popular products. And this hasn't been the only ancient ale they've made. Continuing to collaborate with McGovern, they've also released ales based on residue found in ancient Etruscan tombs, one made using a recipe from ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics, even chicha, a Latin American corn beer. I'm looking forward to having my first taste of the Midas Touch this weekend in New York. Unfortunately, Dogfish Head isn't available up here in Canada. Come on, Dogfish Head. Show us some northern love. And this wasn't the only recreation from ancient Phrygia popping up on modern tables. McGovern, along with museum staff at the University of Pennsylvania, even hosted an entire dinner in 2001 based on what had been found in the tomb, including, of course, some samples of the Midas Touch beer, as well as a flavorful lamb and lentil stew. The chef of the event, Pamela Horowitz, has even published her recipes from that modernized ancient meal online so you can try some of Midas's meals yourself at home. We'll put up a link to her recipes on our website. And so for a while, it seemed like Midas's fortunes finally maybe had turned around, just a few thousand years after his death. Feasts were still being thrown in his honor, and he had his very own beer. But in the early 2000s, right around the time of that modernized Midas feast, Archaeologists from Cornell University re-examined some of the data from the tomb. Midas's bad luck struck again. New and improved dating techniques showed that the tomb actually predated Midas's reign by about 30 years. While Midas is believed to have ruled Phrygia starting around 718 BC, samples from the wooden furniture in his tomb were much earlier, around 740 BC. Meaning, it probably wasn't Midas the Phrygians were toasting at that funeral feast so many thousand years ago. It was now more likely that the tomb had been built for Midas's father, Gordias, a legendary figure in his own right, and the founder of the city of Gordion, responsible for the famous Gordion Knot, a knot tied so tightly, it was said, that it guaranteed the stability of his reign and people. It was only in the 300s the knot was finally undone, sliced in half by a certain chap called, um, Alexander the Great? Keith R. DeVries, an archaeologist from the University of Pennsylvania, when learning about this new data, seemed to take the loss of Midas from Midas's tomb in stride, and summed up the matter in a single sentence. Well, I guess you might say Midas just lost his dinner. Well, despite Midas no longer being buried in Midas's tomb, the excavation at Gordion remains one of the most extensive studies of Phrygian culture in the world. And as luck would have it, you can see many of the pieces recovered from that ancient tomb today if you happen to be around the Philadelphia area. The museum at the University of Pennsylvania has put on a special exhibition called The Golden Age of King Midas, 
which features many of the artifacts recovered from the burial mound, never before put on display in the United States. The exhibition is open until late November, so if you're in the area, it's definitely something worth checking out. We'll put up a link to Patrick McGovern's website, which features all his current work on ancient ales and brews. He's also written a number of books on the subject of ancient alcohol, including Ancient Wine and Uncorking the Past, The Quest for Wine, Beer, and Other Alcoholic Beverages. We'll also put up a video from the original 1950s excavation of the Midas Tumulus, featuring none other than Rodney Young himself. And, of course, we'll put up some recipes and photos of the so-called Midas Feast from the early 2000s. Although I guess we should call it the Gordion Feast now. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson. Technical direction by Mike Port, who spent this week trying to convince himself that he should try cheese in his beer, just like the ancient Phrygians and Greeks. No luck yet, but I'll let you know how the story develops. Check out our website at www.thefeastpodcast.org for tons more information on King Midas and the excavation at Gordion, as well as a list of songs featured on the episode. If you haven't already, please consider becoming a supporting member of The Feast on Patreon. We love making this show and need your help to keep it going. Please check out our donate page on our website or via Patreon at www.patreon.com slash feastpodcasts. There are lots of goodies out there for supporting members, such as exclusive interviews with culinary historians and even free t-shirts. Who doesn't like a free t-shirt? That's all for us this week. We'll be taking a short break while we cook up some great new episodes for you. We'll be back in October with more stories from the dining tables of history. Until then, I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors. Again. From the network that brings you This Is Us. New Amsterdam. Tonight on NBC. NBC.